Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Thanks very much. Uh, Now what we're going to do in this uh, final session uh, is pick up where we left off uh, this morning on page 13 of the handout, uh, where we're dealing with the uh, son's love uh, for, for the father. Uh, and then we're going to start to pick up the theme of the Spirit's uh, gifts and the Spirit's love uh, in the distribution of those, uh, of those gifts, uh, as it were, as the, the final end piece uh, of what we're going to be on uh, for, for this particular look at the Trinity. So, uh, halfway down page 13 of the uh, handouts, uh, the Son's love. Uh, and the Son, indeed, uh, as we've noted, does not just love us, love us, he loves the Father. How's his love uh, shown? Well, the, the biblical basis, uh, above all, I, I, I guess, in, in sort of short order, uh, would be John 14, uh, 31. So if you could turn, with that, uh, turn to that uh, with me now, that would be very helpful. And the context uh, for, for all of this, of course... Uh, is Jesus' uh, words in the, in the uh, upper room. Uh, he's getting ready for, for the cross uh, and he's instructing his disciples about his departure. Uh, he's telling them that, uh, that he must go. So verse 30, uh, he, he, he says this, I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now. Let us leave. Uh, and you have there, of course, uh, don't you, a, a, a full acceptance uh, of, uh, of suffering uh, on the part of uh, the Lord Jesus. Uh, why is he doing this? Uh, why is he submitting to it? Uh, well, he wants to ensure that his father is glorified. That's uh, part of the connotations of the hour, as John puts it in, uh, in his gospel, uh, the moment of crucifixion, the moment of glorification, But it is a moment of glorification, not just for the Son, but for the Father. And as he goes to the cross, Jesus is glorifying his Father. Uh, For that thought, uh, just turn back uh, a few pages uh, in John's Gospel uh, to uh, chapter 12. And at verse 23... Uh, as uh, uh, Philip uh, and uh, Andrew uh, speak to Jesus about uh, the, the, the Greeks who want to, uh, to see Jesus. Uh, verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, and then verse 27, uh, we actually have an interesting development of what that hour involves. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, that word again, No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Uh, And uh, uh, we we have there a sort of gradual unfolding of the thought that uh, uh, Jesus going to the cross, it's not just for his own glory. It's not just that the Lord Jesus is thinking, actually I have a hard task that lies before me. Uh, I will go through the cross and then I will be glorified uh, in the kind of way uh, that uh, uh, the you know, ter- some terrific athlete like Victoria Pendleton will tell you about all the sufferings that she went through in order to get her Olympic, uh, her Olympic medals and her Olympic golds. It's not just for her, but for others too. It's not just for him, but for his father. 
absolutely huge. Why is he prepared to do this, all this at the Father's command? Well, because it reveals his love for the Father. But the world must learn that I love, and you know that he's going to talk about going to the cross, and what would be the most natural thing that you might think of that would be said there? You know, I'm I'm going to the cross to demonstrate my love for, and actually at that point we're being told to demonstrate my love for my Father that I do exactly what my father has commanded me. Now, in one sense, this is very, very obvious, uh, but very, very uh, important, and in a sense, easily skipped over uh, in a culture like ours, which does, I think, tend to uh, separate and divorce obedience from love. Tends to think that the two, if, if anything, are kind of slightly inconsistent somehow. We need to be clear that the Lord Jesus thinks that precisely what manifests his love for his Father is his obedience. And part of the challenge, therefore, uh, it it seems to me, uh, for for, for those who are in the position of the led, is to ask uh, how is it that obedience and love may go together in their particular situation. And part of the challenge for the leader uh, is to be the humble and non-abusive receiver of that kind of thing. Because it's terribly easy, uh, I would guess all of us know, uh, to to take advantage uh, of someone who is offering you something of this magnitude, something of this magnificence. Because loving obedience, it doesn't come cheap, does it? It is a costly thing that's actually being laid uh, before uh, a leader who wants to cite this kind of thing. So if you are a leader, do not do it lightly as you talk about the loving obedience of of the led. In the context, of course, as I say, uh, this is Jesus' obedience, uh, loving his father because it glorifies his father. And once again, we're right back to the idea of an unenvying love. This will do my father, in inverted commas, good because he will be glorified. I will go to the cross. That is an unenvying love uh, of absolutely mind-bending dimensions. What's the rationale uh, for all of this? Well, precisely, of course, that Jesus is a son, a true son. And here I want to introduce you to a punter called Hilary of Poitiers, uh, writing in the 360s uh, in present-day France, then known as Gaul, uh, then known as Lugdunum, now known as uh, uh, Lyon, uh, sorry, um, uh, Poitiers, uh, Poitavia, I think was its uh, Latin name. Uh, great, great bloke in all kinds of ways. Uh, and if you go to Poitiers now and go to one of the early churches, you can see the very font or baptismal pool in which Hillary might have been baptised. <laughs> and uh, we went there We went there a few years ago with the family, uh, and uh, uh, Heather said that she'd stay outside the church with two of the children, and that if I really wanted to, uh, I could go in with, with our eldest. I did, and said, look, in excited kind of scholarly tones, look, that's the font in which Hillary might have been baptised, trembling with my emotion. Uh, and... Uh, Uh, Charlie looked at me as though to to say that actually he had seen more exciting things uh, than than that. But there you go. What can you do? What can you do? 
Hilary of Poitiers uh, puts it this way. He says, look, uh, pe- people and things can be obedient for different reasons. A creature is going to be obedient to their creator <laughs> simply because that's the nature of the relationship or should be. Creators can tell creatures what to do because creatures belong to creators. But fathers can tell sons what to do. Why? Because that's the way that God has ordered things. So you think of the Ten Commandments, and one of the most striking of the Ten Commandments, uh, and uh, uh, one of the ones, obviously, that's most difficult to get across uh, in any kind of youth club setting, uh, is precisely the one about honour your father and your mother. Now, we're calling the son the son. Why do we call the son the son? Well, because that's what the Bible tells us to call him. Why on earth would we think that the true son does not behave in a sonly fashion? True sons obey their fathers. True fathers provide inheritances for their sons, as we saw yesterday. But true sons obey their fathers. And that was Hillary's point. He was saying, look, come on. Uh, get real, Uh, the Bible tells us that the second person of the Trinity is the Son. That really means something. That's the truth. Sons are obviously the same kind of being as their fathers. So uh, a human father does not beget a dog, even in space opera. (laughs) Human fathers beget another human being. So when God begets, when God the Father begets, he's going to beget someone on the same level as himself, inseparable from him, unified with him, because uh, they mutually indwell each other, within each other, as we were seeing this morning, but nevertheless at the same level. But true son doesn't just guarantee that the son really is divine, it also guarantees that the son is going to be a real son and behave in a sonly, a filial way towards his father. That will involve obedience. And that takes us back, doesn't it, to the egalitarian claim about the Trinity, which says, no, the Son doesn't obey the Father. At which point, Hilary of Poitiers would turn around to us and say, what, you're telling me he's not a true son then? Because that's what sons do. And that's what the Bible tells us a son should do. And Jesus, the real son, is no exception to that. Jesus obeys because he's a perfect son. And as a perfect son, his love for his father in his obedience is completely without condition, no matter what the cost. So just as we were asking yesterday, you know, in in terms of what more could the father give the son? So actually this afternoon we have to put the question around the other way uh, and say, how much more could the son love the father in his obedience? How much more could he have obeyed than he has done? How much more could he have loved in that particular sonly fashion? And again, you're confronted, aren't you, by the perfection of divine love uh, in the Trinitarian relations in a sort of slightly different dimension than the giving one we were looking at yesterday, but we're looking at the perfect obedience of the perfect son. That means, of course, that he gives himself uh, above all. In his obedience to the Father, he has given himself to us for our salvation in our place as our substitute 
bearing the punishment for our sins for us, uh, and also clothing us with his righteousness, with his perfect obedience, so that we may be counted law keepers before God and justified on that basis as law keepers for his sake, on account of him. Jesus has given himself in that kind of way. He has also given us. He has given to us, but he has given us as well in various ways. This takes us to Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. And this really is a central passage, isn't it, for understanding Christian ministry. Very, very familiar words, I know, uh, but hugely important. Why so? Because it is telling us that whatever other kind of ministries a church may have, uh, a local church may have, there are some ministries it must, must, must have. Namely, the word ministries of uh, verse 11. We start off uh, in verses uh, in the opening verses, uh, talking about uh, the, the unity of the church and the things that will mark it, completely uh, humble and gentle. Uh, verse 2, bearing with one another uh, in love um, and making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we have that one faith uh, to which we're all called. And then we start to get uh, from verse 7 uh, into the idea of gift again. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. And the picture, of course, uh, is that of the uh, victorious uh, king, uh, able to uh, distribute gifts to to, to all in sundry, uh, and they're going to be rich gifts because, of course, he's won. That's the uh, basic idea. He has captives in his train and he gives gifts uh, to, to men. Verses 9 and 10, uh, where we're talking about ascended and descended, first glance may be a little bit uh, obscure. What it's getting at is, what is the character of this victorious giving king going to be? Is he going to be the kind of giving king uh, who gives out a box of Smarties uh, to, uh, to people here and there? And the answer is no. He's going to be hugely generous. He's in a position to be generous because he is a victorious king who's won a war, but he has a character to be generous Because this one who has ascended is the one who descended to this world for our sakes, who came down in humility for our salvation. The point that's being made is that the ascended one is the very same one who showed that character as he descended in the incarnation. And what happens next? Verse 11. It was he, this victorious ascending, descending king, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And at that point you realise that there's uh, possibly two different ways in which you could take this. Are we talking about uh, giving these people to the church Or are we talking about giving ministries to these ministers? Uh, And overall, uh, you have to say it's actually giving these word ministers to the people of God. Why so? Well, the words that we've got here in this particular translation, to be, 
our insertions. More literally, it is, it was he who gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And that changes things. Because there is a world of difference between me thinking uh, that actually uh, the, the particular ministry that I have is God's gift to me, and that's the most important thing about it. Uh, and in order for me to enjoy my gift, uh, you lot have got to sit there for another... 36 and a half minutes and counting, and boy, am I going to get the most out of it. And you can't move, even to go to the gents. Uh, obviously, some of you wouldn't want to go there anyway. But uh, you, you, you can't move. Uh, is, is that what ministry is about? Where actually, fundamentally, the things that's in the forefront of our minds is the gift to me, the minister of my ministry... Or actually, as thoughts at the forefront of uh, Paul's mind here as he writes this, that the thing is that Jesus has given things to his church. He's given gifts to his people, and they're living gifts with particular ministries. And I think it's pretty clear, as you look at the original, uh, that actually it is the people, the ministers, who are gifts to the people of God that uh, the minister uh, is a servant that Jesus has allocated for particular purposes to his people in particular ways. That changes my conception of my, of my role, really. It makes me, oddly enough, more like a minister in the sense of servant. It's actually quite helpful for me to think of, Jesus, of myself as Jesus' servant, whom Jesus has seconded, as it were, to particular people, to do particular things for them. That's more like it, I think. And it stops me thinking that actually the most important thing about all of this uh, is that I be allowed to exercise my ministry, uh, whether you want it or not. The important thing is that the people of God be built up, that's what all of this is for, into the unity of the faith. And that's exactly the thing, isn't it, that we started with in the opening verses of, verse four, opening verses of chapter 4. We're thinking about how is there to be this unity of the faith? Ah, Jesus is going to ensure that there's unity of the faith by giving word ministers who will teach the people to be unified in Jesus. They serve Jesus and they serve the church uh, by bringing these things about. And that means, of course, that uh, in terms of servant leadership, one of the things that uh, uh, human servant leaders uh, need to be asking themselves is, uh, in what sense is it my ministry? When I talk about the shape of my ministry, when I talk about how do I see my ministry developing uh, over the next 10 years, or where do I see my ministry going, what exactly do I mean by the word my in that context? In what sense is it different from uh, one of my contemporaries who, did, who stayed in law rather than leaving it as I did, from one of them saying, this is how I see my career in 10 years' time? It's a huge question for us, isn't it? It's not that the idea of development is necessarily satanic and ungodly, but it is the use of the word my that starts to be quite telling uh, at this particular point. There are dangers in thinking a ministry belongs to the individual. 
apart from anything else, if you think that the ministry belongs to the individual minister, it makes it much easier for people to reject the ministry of the word, doesn't it? Because you then say, it's not, of course, that I'm refusing to listen to God. I'm just refusing to listen to him. I guess that those of us who who have preached regularly on a Sunday uh, frequently have had the experience of standing there at the church door uh, and you have preached, uh, well, you preached your heart out uh, and you have expounded something that is absolutely clear and someone comes back to you and says, well, that was your interpretation. And they've actually located things back to you and your ministry and what you've done rather than what God has said this morning through his word. So in what sense is it my ministry? I think it's a huge question for us, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, And not always necessarily a very comfortable one. That takes us, don't worry, you're down to 29 minutes now of of my ministry. 15, page 15. Uh, We're on to the spirit now. Uh, and that's a natural development, in a way, from uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, because uh, although, of course, we've just read the Ephesians 4 passage, which speaks of Christ's gifts to the church, uh, the person through whom those gifts are distributed, the actual agent, if you like, in distribution, is the Spirit, uh, the third person uh, of the Trinity. I was very struck uh, by this particular quotation uh, from Basil the Great, uh, who, who's kind of writing round about the 370s uh, on, the, on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and he says this, uh, because he's, he's having, in his particular historical context, he's having to defend the deity of the Spirit. I will say that we were led to glorify the Spirit because the Lord himself first honoured him. The Lord there meaning the Lord Jesus. Uh, and you, it's one of those sentences where you find yourself reading it uh, and then you read it again then you underline it, then you think about it some more, you think there's a lot in it, and then you make it the headline quotation for your talk. Why have I done that? Because I think Basil's really hit the nail on the head, hasn't he? How is it that I know about the Spirit? Well, because the Lord Jesus tells me about the Spirit. And what does the Lord Jesus tell me about the Spirit? And, and you think of the John 14 to 16 stretch, if you like, where so much of the discussion is about the Spirit who will be sent by, by, uh, uh, by the Father at the Son's behest uh, in order to be another counsellor, another paraclete, uh, and so on. And I, I found myself thinking, actually, I've been far too glib in the way that I've read those things. What does Jesus think of the Spirit? Jesus thinks the Spirit's brilliant, doesn't he? He thinks, look, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit is the one who bears witness. The Spirit is the one who will comfort you, who will not leave you uh, as an orphan. Uh, The Spirit is the one who convicts the world of sin. The Spirit is the one who vindicates me. Is the Spirit a good thing? In the view of the Lord Jesus. As far as I can see, the Spirit is a wonderful person uh, in the view of the Lord Jesus uh, because he spends so much of the upper room discourse telling us precisely that. And I think that's what Basil had got. Very, very clearly. Why honour the Spirit in the way that we do? Why say in the Nicene uh, Creed, uh, as as we do uh, Sunday by Sunday, that the Spirit is honoured with the Father and the Son? Why put him on that kind of level? And the straightforward answer is, because the Son does. 
Now, with that in mind, uh, let's get into uh, the, main, uh, the main material. We've been looking, as, uh, as we've said, we're on Heading 1 recap at the moment, uh, and it won't take long. We've looked at the way that uh, our culture has these problems over leadership, over pride and envy uh, in particular. Uh, we've thought about this huge, uh, mutual, shared, asymmetric love in the Trinity. So the Father's love uh, is wonderful and infinite, but actually different in some of its ways uh, from the love of the Son, because it's a paternal giving love. The Son's love is excellent, perfect, and infinite in terms of its filial uh, obedience. What about the Spirit? What about the Spirit? And just as the servanthood of the Son in some ways is a sort of slightly enigmatic thing because you find yourself thinking, who's he really serving in some respects? You also find yourself thinking the Spirit is slightly enigmatic. Because on the one hand, particularly as you read uh, both Acts and the letters, you find yourself thinking that the Spirit is simply pervasive throughout uh, the, uh, uh, the, the post-ascension uh, New Testament writings. Absolutely, uh, absolutely pervasive. But actually it's quite hard to spot him, isn't it? In kind of uh, uh, footballing terms... Uh, he kind of reminds me of Trevor Brooking. Trevor Brooking uh, is a footballer, for those of you who don't know, of a previous generation. Uh, Actually, looking at some of you, he's probably old enough to be your grandfather, uh, not just your father. Uh, But Trevor Brooking had this kind of habit of kind of popping up every now and again, and you'd never spot him coming, and he'd be there, and he'd be gone, uh, and you'd not really notice him. But somehow or other, goals would result. And it was all really rather nice. And they used to say of Trevor Brooking uh, that he only had uh, that he'd only done uh, French GCSE, but he could make the football talk in any language. And you know, you, you find yourself thinking, in some ways, that the Holy Spirit's rather like him. Okay, let's rephrase that. I find myself thinking that the Holy Spirit is, is 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 rather like him because absolutely pervasive, and yet somehow or other not kind of hugely in your face. And that is the shape of the spirit, I guess. He's not out in the cold, we'll find, in terms of this very rosy father-son relationship. He's, he's right there. He's pervasive, but unobtrusive, if I can put it that way. And there are the same patterns, if you like, of love and giving around the spirit too. So, the Spirit's witness to the Son, that's primarily what we're going to be developing of this huge kind of topic uh, this afternoon. Uh, And at this point, I'd like to take you back to uh, one of my great heroes, Athanasius of Alexandria, the Bishop of Alexandria in the 4th century, uh, who defended the deity of Christ. Towards the end of his life, he also had to defend the deity of the Spirit, uh, and this is how he started to do it. Uh, And again, uh, he's uh, kind of anticipating and preparing the ground for the kind of line that Basil Uh, the great uh, took. So Athanasius, he's trying to defend uh, the deity of the Spirit pretty much at the time when he's just won his big fights over the deity of the Son. And someone then comes to him from the marshes of Egypt uh, and says, we've come across people who say that the the Spirit's not divine at all. Uh, The particular man uh, who comes to him is is another bishop called Serapion of a place called Thmuis, and I wanted to tell you that it's Serapion of Thmuis, because I just enjoy saying Thmuis uh, quite a lot. It's, it's not the kind of place that you, you, you find 
close to Sheffield. Uh, Anyway, so this is what Athanasius says. He's trying to defend the deity of the Spirit. And he says, look, when you read John's Gospel, it's rather like this, isn't it? Look at the way that Jesus lines it up in John 14 to 16. As the Father sends the Son, so the Son sends the Spirit. As the Father sends the Son, so the Son sends the Spirit. So you don't start thinking, you know, how does the Spirit fit in with the Father? You start saying, how does the Son Son and Spirit uh, fit together? What's their relationship like? And if you're going to say that the Son is a divine person and that the Father sends the Son and that relationship involves divinity, well then, if the Son sends the Spirit in the same kind of way, then you're going to have to say the Spirit's divine too. So he'd say, look at what happens, look at what the Spirit does at the Son's sending. It's the same kind of thing that the Son does at the Father's sending. And he makes you focus on how it is that Jesus introduces uh, the Spirit. Uh, the great thing uh, is that that takes us back uh, to, uh, th- to the text of John uh, 14 to 16, uh, and we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, thinking this through uh, over the next 10 minutes or so. There are a number of ways that we could uh, pick this uh, up. Uh, We could pick up uh, one of the titles uh, that uh, Jesus gives the the Spirit uh, in this section, which is uh, the idea of counsellor or paraclete or advocate. But the one I want to pick up in particular here is the Spirit of Truth. It occurs three times. John 14, 17, John 15, 26, and John 16, 13. Literally, it's actually spirit of the truth. There's a definite article there. Uh, And you find yourself wondering, you know, is that just a a wonderful turn of uh, phrase? uh, Or is it actually saying there is a specific truth of which the spirit is the truth? The spirit of the truth. The spirit who relates to that particular truth. Uh, In terms of the way that John uses the word truth uh, overall, uh, we'll see in a moment that, yes, we are talking about a particular truth. But for that, uh, let's just just hang on. Remember at this point, heading 421, that there has been a charge against Jesus and that that charge is all to do with him being son. That's the thing that we looked at from John 5. uh, And that, uh, uh, when was that? That was yesterday afternoon, wasn't it? As we looked at the son charge uh, in John 5. Now, turn with me uh, to John 5, 31. Uh, We looked at how Jesus outlines his defence, what the bare bones of it are. He's saying, look, I'm not a rival to my father. How is it that I come to end up with the prerogative powers uh, of God? Well, it's because my father has given them uh, to me. Uh, and uh, uh, what would you say if you were the opposition barrister at that particular point, the opposition lawyer at that particular point? Think kind of American courtroom drama here. Uh, Well, you'd stand up and say, objection, Your Honour. Where is the evidence uh, for this particular thing? You know, it's all very well for this bloke to say this, uh, but, you know, he could just be saying it. So have a look at verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. That's simply referring to the the kind of standard Jewish rule uh, that there has to be corroboration of evidence. You need at least two witnesses. There is another who testifies in my favour. Oh, it's getting a bit interesting if you're on the receiving end of Jesus' argument at this point uh, because it looks like he's starting to say, I've got corroborating evidence. 
What's his corroborating evidence? Well, one corroborating piece of evidence is verse 33. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. And actually, of course, the the truth at that point uh, is a very particular truth, isn't it? Come back with me to John chapter 1, where John actually is interviewed uh, about uh, what it is that he's up to. Uh, And you'll recall uh, that the kind of uh, interview uh, and questioning of John begins in verse 19 uh, of chapter 1. This was John's testimony. So note the the verbal link there. We were talking about testimonies just now. Jesus is saying, I've got testimony to back me up. So we're introduced to John's testimony from verse 19. uh, And uh, we, we find out that he's saying he's not the Christ. He's not Elijah, in the sense of uh, uh, Elijah come back from heaven or something like that. I am not the prophet. That's to say the prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15. That's going to be the Lord Jesus. Uh, And uh, uh, he then defines himself in in terms of verse 23. But what does he then testify about Jesus? Because after all, that's what Jesus is interested in. He's claiming that John actually testifies in support of him. Well, John's testimony continues until you get to verse 34 of chapter 1. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. So what is the testimony of John? The testimony of John about Jesus, finally, is that this is the Son of God. What is the truth to which John testifies that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the truth in question. That's the big truth of John's gospel, actually, isn't it? The big truth of John's gospel uh, is that uh, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and therefore God is his Father, uh, and that uh, uh, he will uh, make us the adopted children of, uh, of his Father by paying the penalty for our sins by his death on the cross. That Jesus is Son, God is Father. That's the, the testimony about the identity of God, Uh, that's actually given to us in John's Gospel. And that, of course, is the truth that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth about. It's wonderful that the Spirit never lies to us uh, and all the rest of it. That's great, that's true, but what's in the forefront is the way that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth about Jesus. How much better a ministry can you get than... uh, testifying about the second person of the Trinity and everything that he is. To be the spirit of truth, this is the kind of diagram towards the foot of page 16, to be the spirit of truth is to be the spirit who brings this truth. This truth, truth about Jesus, truth. And of course, uh, when we look in a little more detail about what the spirit does, John 14, uh, 26, it's truth about Jesus, that's actually the uh, issue, isn't it? So 14.25, Jesus says, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So what are the all things? It's being put in parallel with everything that I've said. What's the ministry of the Spirit at that point? To take us to the words uh, of Jesus. 15.26 Uh, In a way, it's even starker. 
When the counsellor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. What's he going to testify? Well, it will be the same testimony as John the Baptist's, that this is uh, the, the, the Son of God. And in chapter 16, uh, 14, uh, of course, it's the, the same kind of uh, thought again. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and, no, and making it known to you, by taking what I have taught and making it yours, revealing it uh, to you, reminding you of what it means. And what does the Spirit do at that point? Well, he glorifies, doesn't he? And we're, we're right back uh, to that kind of network of mutual glorification uh, that you, 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 you find yourself uh, confronted with time and time in John's Gospel. So you have the Father being glorified by the Son as the Son goes to the cross. But at the same time, the Father is glorifying the Son, isn't he? Pointing him out, telling people at the baptism and elsewhere, this is my Son, who, who, who's my beloved, uh, and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. And you have the Spirit glorifying the Son as well. And the Son telling us that the Spirit is this kind of Spirit, uh, with this kind of charity and this kind of uh, magnitude. So in that kind of way, the content of what the Spirit brings is Christocentric, isn't it? Christocentric, and by centering us on Christ, it enables us, as it were, to look through Christ and see the Father, because that's where Jesus ultimately leads us, as the way, the truth, uh, and the life. The Spirit points us, therefore, top of page 17, the Spirit points us away from himself to Christ as Lord and Saviour, and through Christ to God the Father. And at that point you find yourself thinking, so the Spirit is prepared to be two steps away from the centre of attention. And yet he is a Spirit who knows the mind of God, 1 Corinthians. He is a Spirit who knows the truth, can teach it. He is a Spirit who can be counsellor, advocate, advocate, encourager, all these wonderful things, and he is content to be two steps away, if I can put it that way, from the centre of, the, the of attention. And what, I guess one of my concerns about some of the things that uh, uh, we, we, we sometimes hear about um, uh, renewed emphasis on the spirit at the moment is that I wonder whether it, it manages to capture quite how other person-centred the spirit is. Because the Spirit loves to point you to Jesus and loves to point you to the Father. He is not so concerned with pointing us to himself. Of course we should honour him because the Lord Jesus does. That's Basil the Great's point. But oddly enough, we don't honour the Spirit by refusing to go where he points. If you're a signpost... You want to point beyond yourself to something, don't you? And that's what the Spirit wants. He doesn't want us to uh, simply allow our, our gaze to, to stop and rest on him. He wants to point us on to Jesus and through Jesus to, to, to the Father. That's the pattern that's actually sort of given to us here. And that means that every person of the Trinity, yes, their, their works may be subtly different, but they're indissolubly joined, aren't they? joined together. And one of the things that features is this remarkable lack of envy and uh, an urge, a wish, a desire, 
to glorify the others. And we see that very, very starkly uh, with the Spirit. He's saying, look at Jesus, he's the wonderful son. And, there, and look, he, he takes you through to the Father. Look at what he's, he's doing. Don't, don't spend all your time looking at me, look at them. And that's a kind of hallmark, isn't it, when you come down to it, uh, of what it is that the Spirit does. And even when we're thinking about the uh, scriptures, which of course are uh, are one of the prime works of the Spirit, uh, even the the scriptures, of course, point to Jesus. Jesus himself says so, uh, that actually the scriptures, they're another testimony to him. And you can say that the Spirit testifies to Jesus uh, actually in a number of different ways, uh, through the Old Testament scriptures that he inspires through the renewal of our hearts and the inspiration of the New Testament scriptures. But at every point, it's Christ-focused. That takes us, uh, fifthly, uh, to the Spirit's gifts to God's people. This is related, isn't it, to the way that the Spirit wants to testify, wants to point, uh, wants to urge us uh, to, to look at Jesus. Uh, and that's why we had this uh, uh, wonderful passage from 1 Corinthians uh, read to us. So if we could turn to 1 Corinthians 12, just at this point. And in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, uh, we've got a major discussion in Paul uh, about uh, gifts of the Spirit, one way or another. Uh, The marker for that uh, is the now about spiritual gifts bit. Uh, That phrase uh, in the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 12, uh, and within uh, 1 Corinthians as a whole, the now about uh, is one of the kind of transition points from one topic to another uh, that Paul uh, is, is uh, uh, going on to, to discuss. And first of all, uh, we're told that there are some things that every Christian has. There is a common authenticating gift of the Spirit, and that is the confession that Jesus is Lord. We know uh, that uh, uh, someone who denies that actually is not someone who has received the common gift of the Spirit and does not have a renewed heart. On the other hand, someone who does have Jesus as his Lord, just because they may be unlike us in all kinds of other ways and function very differently from us, well, actually, they still have the gift of the Spirit. So this little section here in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 3, it both limits and includes. Limits... Because, yes, people have to say Jesus is Lord. That's the mark of the Spirit. Includes, because it's saying, look, uh, all you need is Jesus is Lord. That's the mark of the regenerating uh, Spirit. Don't worry about spiritual experiences of other kinds. So, uh, if you look at verse 2, that's the the kind of thing that's at... uh, uh, an issue there. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. And the idea that's been got out there uh, is the kind of spiritual experience you can have, in inverted commas, uh, if you go in for some kind of weird pagan mystery religion or something like that. So if you're one of those sad people who watches geography channels, uh, you may well find uh, that you can have a, you know, a quick documentary about uh, black magic and voodoo uh, over in Haiti. And as far as you can see, there are some you know, real experiences to be had there. Uh, often on the basis of certain chemical substances, but nevertheless, they're real experiences. Does that kind of make you think, oh gosh, voodoo's right? Well, no, you don't, because 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 3, there's no Jesus is Lord there. 
That's the thing. But as well as the common authenticating gift, first four onwards, there are all kinds of other gifts that actually need to be focused on. Different kinds of gifts. And the big image, of course, that Paul has at this point is that the people of God are a body. And there is a diversity and the diversity is necessary. And that's a critical point, isn't it? It's not just that there's diversity, but the diversity is actually necessary for the body to function. All of this is in the context of mutual edification and mutual dependence. And there's a sort of ouch thing there uh, in a number of ways. Uh, if, a, if there's mutual dependence, then actually I need to say that I need someone who's different from me. Now, I don't know how you experience difference uh, when someone actually has a different set of gifts from you. Uh, maybe you experience it all as being sort of terribly, terribly positive. Uh, but uh, some of us, uh, I have a friend uh, who, uh, as they say, uh, some of us experience it pretty negatively. And actually, we love to have people who are very, very like us uh, around us, as like us as possible. It'd be lovely if uh, you know we had one of those tightly knit churches, uh, by which we mean people of the same race, same social class, same income, uh, with uh, the same uh, hair and all the rest of it, and preferably who interbreed uh, over generations. That kind, of, that kind of thing. That kind of sameness. And you have to say, you know, is that the vision of the people of God that's here in 1 Corinthians 12? And you say no. Because the one thing that that would breed out in time is a real sense of diversity and dependence. I am challenged. I am challenged to recognize my own limitations. I'm challenged sometimes to recognize my own sin precisely by the different gifts that other people bring and other people offer. And if it was not for the difference, then I would not see that. And also, I would not grow, and my church would not grow as it should. And there, I think, there's a a huge challenge for us, simply in the recognition of one another's gifts. Not just uh, about the the recognition of uh, the gift of leadership or the gift of being ledship, but actually a much wider question about the recognition of others' gifts. The Spirit gives in his free will. That means someone else may get the gift that you want. I remember vividly as a, as a teenager uh, praying for the gift of tongues and other people in my youth club getting it and not me. Why would the Spirit not give me the gift of tongues? I think he was very wise. Looking back after all these years, uh, I'm thinking he knew very well uh, that I would be puffed up and become even more unbearable uh, if uh, I was given that gift. And part of my recognition of the spiritual nature of these gifts and the sense that they come from the Spirit is a recognition that the Spirit will give at his discretion and with that I must trust him and not envy the fact that a gift is given to somebody else that I would otherwise like. It's very, very challenging. Being content with somebody else's uh, gifts. 
and being content that they minister, that they build people up, and that people respond to them and love them and admire them. Envy stalks very, very closely there, doesn't it? Uh, and uh, we don't always call it envy, of course. We call it uh, my alpha male capability uh, and competitiveness or, or some other kind of uh, thing like that. But nevertheless, it's there. And I think at that point, offer us, uh, it's worthwhile asking the questions on, on page 18, uh, which I'm, I'm going to suggest that you actually uh, go away with because I think these are quite challenging ones. Once we start to think about the necessary diversity of the Spirit's gifts within the church, let's think positively about the way that that offers us opportunities to love on Trinitarian patterns, generously, prizing others' gifts, enjoying them, encouraging them, nurturing them, and not envying them. Similarly, of course, uh, we will have to recognise challenges, I would guess, about whether or not we have seriously taken on board the necessary diversity of the Spirit's gifts uh, within a local church. And lastly, uh, can you turn back a few pages uh, in 1 Corinthians 4 uh, as we think about the the gifts that uh, uh, the Holy Trinity in their uh, wisdom have actually conferred uh, through the Spirit on the church. (coughs) Lastly, as we think about uh, these... uh, 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 these things, let's just bear in mind one of the kind of classic descriptions uh, of what's actually involved in in leadership and servant leadership in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. Now here we're talking about uh, uh, the whole Corinthian situation where uh, there have been factions, there have been groups, uh, as far as one can see there's been competitiveness, uh, envy, dissension and all the rest of it around uh, particular human individuals and actually Paul is saying no, 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 no to that. Rather, 4 verse 1, people ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. That word servants there, uh, I think myself probably a better translation at this point would be stewards, which is one that uh, some of the other translations actually go for. And a steward, of course, is someone who is the image, is that of the household manager, who simultaneously is the one whom the head of the household has entrusted things to, and yet actually administers things within the household for the benefit of the other servants and the other people in the estate. So entrusted with, from the head honcho, on behalf of and for the benefit of others too. And the challenge, of course, is to be genuinely a steward and not a possessor. Now, as as conservative evangelicals, we're deeply, deeply committed to word ministry and to knowledge Ministry, if I can put it uh, that way. But there is a risk, uh, and uh, the, the German theologian Helmut Thielicke uh, points this out very, very helpfully, there is a risk that all of us start to think that we possess the knowledge that we have or the ability to teach that, that we have. We act as though it's ours and ours alone. It's not so much that we know the wrong thing, We know the right thing, but we hold that knowledge wrongly. We're like the steward uh, who has the bottle of wine uh, that uh, uh, very generously has been given uh, by the the master. 
uh, and the steward knows that it's a really good wine uh, and actually is drinking it himself or herself. Word ministers uh, in the evangelical tradition face acutely the kind of problem that comes with the idea that knowledge is power. In an evangelical setup, the lead teacher, the lead preacher, is a very powerful figure. And we have to recognize that because that's certainly one of the things that the rest of the world spots about us. It's true in churches as it is elsewhere. And the challenge of 1 Corinthians 4.1 is that we are stewards of that knowledge, not possessors. Stewards will not edit it, change it, corrupt it, but will hand it on faithfully and hand it on genuinely for the benefit uh, of others uh, rather than simply holding on to it for their own sakes. So stewards and servant leaders, 533. Uh, I, I think the idea of steward rather than possessor, absolutely crucial uh, for putting flesh on the idea of servant leadership and what it means for us. Uh, in the in the kind of uh, uh, Bible believing setting, uh, for for the leader, uh, of course, one has to ask: Is there faithful stewarding for the ultimate owner? Have I really kept the word safe? Uh, actually, uh, have I loved the God who's given it to me? And actually, have I failed to pass it on, or even exploited those whom I lead? And for the, for the lead, there's that huge question of whether or not we recognise that the steward ultimately is accountable to the ultimate owner. That that's where their responsibility lies. Imagine again the household. Terribly easy to think of all the other servants saying to the steward, come on, get the champagne out of the cellar. That's what we really like you to do. And the steward's got to say no. Now at that point, that, that's for the master's big bash in a fortnight's time. I mustn't do it. I've got to be faithful to him. The obvious comparison here would be 2 Timothy 4. uh, Comparison passage, that's to say. Because what you have in 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, uh, and what follows there, is what you might call non-servant leadership and non-servant leadership. Non-servant leadership, because the servant leader refuses to preach the word in season and out of season. Non-servant leadership... Because you say, no, I'm not going to be content for the minister actually to be the the faithful steward of God. I want him to say what I want to hear, not what he's been told to say. And as you stop and think about it, you think that's huge, isn't it? Because you're stopping the steward being faithful. Of course, the risk is that both the leader and the led collude together in this kind of way. So the leader gets something out of it and loves himself because he gets the popularity. The led, well, ostensibly, they're just getting the liberty to do what they they want. But actually, that's a form of self-love too, isn't it? And as we think about it, that's the antithesis of Trinitarian love, isn't it? Because the genuine love that needs to inform both leader and led, servant leadership, servant ledship, actually genuine love is going to be looking for the benefit of the other and not be a recipe for self-love. Let's leave it there. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask for your help in every kind of way. Uh, uh, We ask uh, for for gifts of the Spirit uh, to uh, equip us where uh, they are needed, 
not that we as individuals may be glorified, but that the people of God may be built up uh, and brought to the headship, into the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you, Heavenly Father, may be glorified in all things. Amen.